You're listening to Nerdy Jobs, a podcast presented by NerdsOnEarth.com. The mission of Nerdy Jobs is to highlight both the creativity and the professionalism of those who are behind the nerdy things we love. This episode of Nerdy Jobs features an interview with Chris O'Neill, board game designer and co-founder of Brotherwise Games. We're here with Chris from Brotherwise Games, and what we wanted to do in this podcast is just highlight just uh, the behind the scenes on, on making a board game, what it means to have a board game hit, what it means to to just work in the industry, just so that we might just gain some appreciation for some of the nerdy things that we love. So uh, thanks, Chris, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Very excited. Yeah. No, and the, the first thing that we ask Every every podcast is we want to know your origin story. So how how did you get going? How did you what what brought you to be a game designer? Uh, how did you get started being a nerd? Uh, gosh, I have been a nerd as uh, as long as I can remember. Um, <laughs> uh, my dad was a was a uh, was a bit of a nerd. He you know always reading a sci fi or fantasy book, um, always encouraging us to read. Uh, my brother and I, and so we got started pretty early on. Uh, I want to say back in the in the eighties uh, with Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, that's uh, the best! You know, we were we were playing the the early strategic board games like Axis and Allies. Uh, we were you know we were sort of constantly exploring early nerd culture. Uh, you know, coming coming to light in the uh, in the in the early eighties, particularly so. Um, for us, I would say, you know, our most relevant origin story is the, the advent of the Nintendo Entertainment System, um, the gaming console that, that came about in sort of the mid-80s, where oh um, most kids our age, this was sort of an epiphany and a revolution, uh, and um, we were all huddled around these little 12-inch uh, you know, early, t- or not early TVs, but sort of early small TVs that we would have in our rooms, um, playing those games, playing Zelda, playing Mario. Um, and, you know, that that's really where I think the, the genesis of popular nerd culture got started. Um, at least that's, that's sort of my take on it. Um, ever since then, I've, I've been, you know, sort of growing more and more comfortable with my nerdiness uh, to the point that, um, you know, starting a few years ago, was actually able to make a business out of it, uh, and you know, it's um, it's something where we've never looked back. I, I, it's a great time to be a nerd, a magical time to be a nerd. Uh, I think you can you can look at sort of the uh, most successful movies in the theaters, the most successful TV shows on TV, the most successful books in the bookstores. Um, these are these are stories that revolve, revolve around uh, what have traditionally been sort of nerdy areas um, and board gaming is now growing into its own the, the industry has been growing by double digits year over year for the past seven years uh, a pace of growth that at times has outpaced that of video games um, particularly recently and um, so now it is I think the most social of the nerdy endeavors and we're seeing more and more folks coming to uh, coming to the tabletop. Uh, and not just bringing their nerd friends, but bringing their non-nerd friends as well. So uh, it's spreading, um, and uh, we're excited to be a part of it. 
Uh, first of all, it's taken literally all of my self-restraint not to just turn this into a podcast about the Nintendo NES. I can't tell you how <laughs> many millions of hours I spent on that. I love it. Um, but then, you know, when I think about Boss Monster, and so you've had a huge board game hit. When I think about Boss Monster, um, and I hear your your origin story. So tell me uh, specifically the story of Boss Monster. Yeah, so Boss Monster got started in, um, well, it got started a long time ago in my brother's head, Johnny O'Neill's head. Uh, <laughs> it's a somewhat different game, but I think really started to come together in uh, probably around 2009 when my family moved from Michigan to Southern California uh, for a job. Uh, and Johnny's family was already based here. Uh, and we ended up being only about an hour away from each other. Um, uh, and started to do what we had always done when we were together as kids, which was gaming. Uh, so we started doing tabletop games. Like most gamers, we would start to um, complain about the games we were playing and find things that we wanted to change and improve. Uh, and pretty soon we were sort of thinking, well, if we're spending all this time sort of homebrewing these games and um, house ruling them, maybe we should stop complaining and start making our own games. So. Um, I, I put a, forward a wager that the first one of us that could create a prototype, a working prototype of a board game would, I think when, uh, you know, maybe it was a, a bottle of whiskey. I don't remember what it nice, was. Game top. on. It was something like that. Uh, and um, we, we, we shook on it and went our separate ways for a while. And when we got back together, I had actually won the bet. I had created a game called Snipers, which was a memory game where you would try to snipe the opponent's officers in his army. Uh, and it was a fine game. It was a fun little game. Uh, but thank God we didn't pursue it because uh, a couple months later, Johnny came back with um, Boss Monster or, or a very, very early version of Boss Monster. And and actually, Boss Monster had started as uh, years and years and years ago, I want to say when he was in college, um, as a game about uh, high school uh, kids' popularity. Uh, and sort of bidding for friends and things like that. And um, it's, uh, you know, after a little while working that, he and I both realized we didn't know a lot about high school popularity, <laughs> having never <laughs> been that popular in high school. Um, you were playing Nintendo. So we were playing Nintendo, you know. And uh, so we changed the theme. Um, the game went through about three years of, of iterations where we, where we um, you know, Worked around with it, uh, played you know with some different ideas until eventually um, the game that was Boss Monster was starting to mechanically take form, uh, and he brought it in one day to play testing, and uh, said, you know I'm I'm liking this idea. You put your big guy here, and he puts these rooms out here, and he tries to get these heroes to come into it. And I looked at it and I said, you know what this looks like to me? This looks like an old side-scrolling video game. Um, and he sort of said, uh, yeah, I can see why you think that, but it's it's not. It's different than that. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I really think this looks like, uh, this reminds me a lot of sort of Mario or you know some other games that we played on the TI-99 or you know these other games on the Commodore. Um and I said, I really think we should make the art 8-bit and 16-bit. And the little heroes will sort of jump through the dungeon. Um, and people will go bananas for that. And he said, no, no, I don't like that idea. That's a stupid idea. 
and we had a fight about it, I'm sure. And um, he drove off, and he was almost home, and I get a phone call, and he says, all right, I'm going to try it out. I'm going to look at the art, and I'll get back to you. And so a few days later, he sends me um, a couple examples of, of 16-bit art, pixel art, that he had put together as a sample. And he's, he's, he's far more artistically talented than I am, so this was a good thing for him to do. And he says, I think I like it. This, is, this looks like it's got some potential. So we went with the 16-bit look. We started commissioning um, artists uh, who were better than both of us at this to put together the art for the card. Uh, it turns out there's this huge pixel art community out there that we were able to draw. And uh, in November of 2012, we kick-started the game. We, um, we set our Kickstarter uh, goal at $12,000, <clears> excuse me, and the general assumption was, you know, at, at this level, if we completely bomb, mom and dad can bail us out. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the, we can find a way to beg friends and family to bail us out. Uh, and of course, that, that Kickstarter went on to make um, about $215,000, and we were totally taken like, by surprise. You're like, oh. We had no... We had no clue it was going to be as big as it was, um, and it just kept growing. So it, it uh, we had that successful Kickstarter. We then got in with a few games distributors who got it into a few stores, and then from there it just grew like wildfire. So um, at this point, Boss Monster moves um, about a hundred thousand units a year. Uh, we're in hobby stores all over the world. Uh, we're now in mass market, including Boss uh, Barnes and Noble and Target. Uh, and it just seems to keep growing. So we're never quite sure where it's going to go next. Uh, you know, we're always trying to sort of push the boundaries of it. Um, and uh, it's gotten to the point where it's now able to support me uh, as a full-time job. And um, someday, you know, hopefully it's able to do more. Yeah, man, that's that's amazing. So I'm, I'm thinking about this design process for Boss Monster, which is essentially just two brothers, you know, fighting over art direction. Um, so I wonder, like, yeah. how, how has the design process changed for you guys based upon what you learned with Boss Monster? Well, um, you know, our design process is probably not that different from a lot of other board game designers, with the exception of the fact that we, um, we tend to start with, uh, you, you know, we get a basic idea down. Um, and then very early on, we asked the question, emotionally, how do we want this to impact our players? Hmm. Um, and um, we are, we've sort of, we're looking at the games that we loved the most. And the games that we loved the most weren't necessarily the most intellectual. They weren't necessarily the most strategic. Um, they weren't necessarily the most approachable. They were always the games that left us with a powerful emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of become the brotherwise ethos of design, which is when someone brings me a game, um, my first question for them is, how is this supposed to make me feel? Uh, and that takes a lot of people off guard because they'll say, well, I want you to have fun. And I'll mm-hmm. say, yes, of course, I'm going to, I want to have fun. You know, it's a game. If I don't have fun, that's no good. But how am I going to feel as I'm having fun? Um, and with Boss Monster, that feeling that we tried to target was nostalgia. For sure. So once we, once we realized that um, there was a game there, and once we realized that there was a look there, 
the next step was how do we capitalize on on this look and on this um, on this on these game mechanics so that as people are playing it, they're sort of feeling both the delight uh, and sometimes the uh, even the regret of nostalgia. Uh, and it, I think that that was pretty key to Boss Monsters' success because <clears throat> excuse me, we launched at the um, sort of at the long healing end of the recession. And during that time period, I think a lot of people who were suffering uh, were sort of looking back at their childhood as a time when things were better. Hmm. And so they could come to Boss Monster and as they play it, sort of say, oh my God, I know that Easter egg they're, they're hitting up there. Oh my gosh, that guy reminds me of this boss from this game I used to play. And I think, it's, I think it really was a hook for folks. Uh, and so that emotion was... I think is key to the success of Boss Monsters anything else. And I think continues to be in the sense that um, people are able to play it in with their, you know, parents, they're able to play it with their friends. All of them have this touchstone of nostalgia that they can go to. Yeah, I, I, gosh, I love that. I love that that's the approach you took. Because honestly, the first time I saw the box, it was emotional. It was that nostalgia, exactly the way you, you mentioned when I saw the just the cover art. I'm like, oh, you know, it takes you back immediately, uh, and it it you just get that little emotional uh, ping. But how do you how do you um, like? What are the principles and the elements that that come out as you are designing in that way? Are there certain things that you try to implement? Yeah. Um, so one of the other things we do that's sort of key to our design process um, is. We go full design much earlier than most other companies do. So we start soliciting art pretty much just as soon as we're, you know, sure that of a direction we want to go. So, um, you know, Boss Monsters, once we were sort of settled on this 8-bit look, we moved as quickly as we can to, as we could, to get to a prototype that looked like the final product. Hmm. And there's all kinds of services out there that help game designers do this sort of print on demand. Um... That, that process of sort of going to full prototype as early as possible is often doesn't pay off in the sense that you often have to sort of scrap things and go to a new prototype. But what it does is it helps you really zero in on that. How does this make me feel? Um, and that how does this make me feel question is, you know, best answered by playing the game over and over again with that look going. So that's something that we do. I'd say the other thing that we do is we tend to play test in a smaller group early on and a bigger group later on. A lot of other game companies try to get play testing out, uh, you know, as early as they can. We found that to be less productive in the sense that um, I guess it's sort of a quality over quantity thing. We're trying to hear from folks that are, you know, that we know how they're going to react to things. We sort of selected our core play testing group. Um, based on some key characteristics. The folks that are in that group are kind of representative of our players as um, broader whole. And so we feel pretty good about the more intimate design process. Now, having said that, we do go to a broader, bigger design uh, playtesting process later on. And um, you can run into issues there where your smaller group just wasn't right about things or they were focusing in on something so that, that doesn't always pay off with the process that we've used. Because I want to talk about a little bit about the business side of board games because, you know, folks are like, 
Hey, how awesome. You play games for a living. Um, but it's a business. You, you got to run a business. So can you talk about that business side? What's, what are the kind of things that surprised you about that side of hobby games? Sure. Um, well, those, those folks are totally right. Um, it, it is fun all the time. Uh, I, I will say I haven't worked a day since I started full-time in this job. We're in the business of fun. And so even on my toughest days, um, I can sort of, you know, hold on to the, the idea that this is, I'm making a fun experience for someone. This is, this is something yeah. to, this is not right. work. This is fun. So if you can get into the gaming industry, if you're listening to this, definitely do it. It is fantastic. It's a great group of people. It's a great customer base. It's really, really um, undeniably the greatest job on earth. Um, having said that, it is a business. And um, when people ask how I spend my days, the answer is uh, usually I spend a lot of time the same way any other business person does. Um, I do a lot of email. I do a lot on the phone. I'm putting out a lot of fires. Um, it is a lot of very basic work um, mm -hmm. because we're making a product. And when you're making a product, whether it's a car, whether it is um, you know glass cleaner, whether it's a game, ultimately you've got a customer, uh, you've got a distribution chain, you've got a manufacturer, and you are, uh, as the publisher, um, trying to juggle all this in a way that's going to be the best product possible. So um, I think, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of business experience before starting this. I'd been in academia all my life. I have a PhD in biology uh, or in uh, tropical ecology. And so I... Um, so that didn't transfer perfectly, right? Uh, no, I, except for the idea that ecologists are trained to look at systems. And I do sort of look at all this industry as a system. Um, that's really it. No, I really wasn't prepared for this. And I've had to learn as I go. The biggest surprise that we faced um, is probably uh, probably just how great everybody is. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know if it's because I've been interacting in academia for so long, and 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 people can be tough in academia, but overall, I can count on one hand the number of people in this industry that I've met that I don't want to meet again. Hmm. Um, most of them are just amazing. They're all just kind of tickled to be working in this industry. They yeah, love board, board uh, game we, folks are great folks. That's for sure. They, they really are. There's sort of this ethos in our industry and it, it sounds like a cliche sort of marketing line, but the idea is that there's a space at the table for everybody. There's a seat for everybody at what we do. Um, we don't care what color you are. We don't care uh, if you're on the autism spectrum. We don't care um, who you're in love with. Uh, you know, come play with us and yeah. we will find a space for you. And that is just so cool. Uh, it is, I, it just keeps getting borne out again and again through my interactions with folks in the industry and with the players. And I couldn't be happier to be a part of it. Um, it is, it is really an amazing magical group of people. And again, if you're not a gamer, I encourage you to go down to your local game store and meet some folks. You'll be amazed at how open the community is. Um, that's not to say we don't have our, our problem players. Um, but you know, everybody's learning, everybody's trying to get better. And, um, as a whole, I've, I've been shocked at how easy it is to get along with folks here. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, speaking, speaking about the, the hobby and you mentioned previously that it has, it's, it's grown double digits past several years. Um, so I'm curious, like, where do you think it's going to next five years? Like would the growth continue or are there some other thoughts that you have about the future of the, 
hobby game industry? Um, I am one of the folks who's worried about where we are. Um, and, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm right, but right now, um, we are seeing so many new releases a month that hobby game stores can't shelve even a fraction of those games, much less get to know them, uh, in a way that they can represent them to their customers. So, um, what I think we're heading towards is sort of an inevitable contraction where we're seeing less games inputted into the system each month. Now, does that mean that the, the, the population of players is going to shrink? Does it mean that sales overall are going to decline? I don't think so. I, I think this industry is looking very strong for quite a while. But I think it does mean that publishers like myself are going to have to start thinking differently about how we bring new games to market. And I think there's going to be a higher barrier to entry for newer, smaller publishers. So we came on the scene in um, 2009, essentially. Um, no, wait, 2012, 2013 is when we came on the scene. Sorry. And the way we came on and the success that we had, I don't know if that would be possible to replicate today. And I don't know if it would be possible... Um, for a, a company to sort of pull off what we did, um, you know, now or in the, in the near future. So that's my worry. Um, although it's, it's less a worry and more of a sort of, um, you know, being a bit of a Cassandra and, and, and making that prophecy. But we'll see what happens. I don't think a contraction would be a bad thing. I, I think it would be great to sort of winnow out um, some of the players who are, uh, maybe not producing as uh, high quality a product, uh, maybe not as invested in the industry as others are. But at the same time, I really love this idea of an industry where sort of anybody uh, who has an internet connection and, um, you know, the, the, the will can make a prototype of their game and get on Kickstarter and try to get it made. I, I think that's really wonderful. And we love nothing more than to talk to new designers who are, who are trying to, replicate what we did um, more power to them we, we think it's just the coolest thing in the world so we'll see what happens um i, I uh there, there there is no such thing as sort of you know eternal growth in an industry contractions mm -hmm. happen um we will head for one eventually i think it will be a healthy one though for this industry um and um and i continue to i, I would I, I would sort of jump on the predictions of if not continued growth than a sustained, very hot, uh, large player population for quite a while to come. No, I I think you're absolutely right. There are a lot of games on the shelves, um, more and more, to the point where yeah, it becomes how do you get a game to to stand out? But you just did so. Unearth, which is your new game, sold out at Gen Con, sold out even. I think you told me you got extra copies and sold out. So you found a way to break through um, that and make your game stand out. So, so tell us about Unearth. Yeah. So Unearth is our latest game. Uh, we've gone essentially um, four years without a second title. And that's a very long time in this industry. Uh, but in those four years, what we've done is we've doubled down on boss monster and, and made sure that we established boss monster as a sustainable um, you know, uh, evergreen game. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of that time looking for just the right game. Mm -hmm. uh, we had been looking internally with, with, uh, with me doing design uh, of new games, but 
eventually uh, we decided, you know, we should look externally. We really need to get another game out there. Excuse me. Um, and we need to get another game out there soon. You know, we can't be a one-hit wonder forever. So we looked to um, uh, external designers. We sort of opened up a submission process, and we heard from a couple guys a couple years ago named Jason Harner and Matthew Ransom. And they came to us with a dice game that we really liked a lot, but didn't think that it was quite there. Uh, it was called Dice Lords. And we said to them, you know what? This has a lot of potential. It's not quite there for us. Um, go back, get back to work, and come back to us if you if you think you come up with something better. And last year at Gen Con, they sat us down and they said, we think we've got something better. Um, it was a game called Petals. Uh, it was the progenitor of Unearth. Um, it had essentially the exact same mechanics, but the theme, uh, instead of being uh, with, with Unearth, you're, you represent this tribe of Delvers trying to unearth the um, glory of your long-lost civilization uh, by unearthing runes and, and rebuilding wonders. And um, with Petals, it was about bees foraging for, for pollen. Mm-hmm. And so we really liked the mechanic. We... we um, we went back from that sort of play session. Uh, we went back to our hotel room uh, and um, we're talking internally and uh, essentially decided to that night reach out to Jason and Matt and say, Hey, you know, we're, we're pretty interested in this. Could we, um, could we reserve that prototype for us to take home and play? Uh, and so we got that and we, we loved it. We thought, okay, this is it. This has everything we need. We've made a few changes to it. We went back to Matt and Jason and said, hey, would you mind if uh, if we change the theme on this um, to something that, um, again, we were sort of trying to target an emotion. Um, Petals, the, the B theme was cool, but it, it didn't really make us feel anything. And so we went back and um, uh, said, you, you know, we, we settled on the emotion of melancholy. We sort of said, we want people to start this game feeling kind of sad. Uh, we want the art and we want the experience to make them feeling like they've lost something. Uh, and over the course of the game, they'll regain it back. And so that's really how we settled on the isometric vector art. We found Jesse Riggle, uh, who's, who's a, a very uh, popular artist in the isometric vector art community. Um, the... Uh, you know, we went for a gloomier, sort of sadder, broken down look. I think we nailed that emotion. Um, players start on Earth feeling a little subdued and unsure. Uh, and over the course of the game, you can see them getting happier and more confident as they go. Um, so I really love that. Uh, and it seems, uh, you know, for whatever reason, it seems to be a success. So we're, we're expecting it to be um, one of the more popular games this season. Um, based on the response we got at Gen Con, time will tell. We'll, we'll see whether it is a as big a success as Boss Monster. That's pretty hard. Like I said, there's not a lot of room in the industry for big successes anymore. Uh, we have sort of what we're calling the cult of the minute, where the the current most popular board game is really popular for a month and then mm-hmm. um, disappears. So we'll see if uh, On Earth is the game of the minute or if it can last longer than that. Oh, man, that's great. I'm excited to play it myself. And my wife and I are looking for a new game, so I'm hoping to get her in on it as well. So thank you so much. Appreciate this, but I'm not going to let you go until uh, you tell us what else you're nerdied out on. So any, anything sure. else Anything else you're into? Um, 
You know, uh, there's sort of this great irony. People will say, uh, hey, you're in the board game industry. You just get to play games all day long. And I'll have to say to them, actually, I play a lot less games than I used to. Um, and the games I play are generally crappy prototypes that we're working on. So um, it is <laughs> the, uh, my, the things I'm nerding out on right now are not necessarily um, board games. Although, uh, if you haven't played Star Wars Rebellion and oh, you're a... Great. Uh, yeah, if you're a big strategy gamer, if you've played War of the Ring or any of the sort of asymmetrical strategy games, Star Wars Rebellion is so much fun, um, particularly for a Star Wars fan. So that's one thing I would say there. But my big um, my big nerdgasm recently has probably been, uh, I, I came to this late, but there's a TV show on sci-fi called The Expanse, um, and I've been you know, streaming that. Uh, the Expanse is a not a near future, but a moderately near future where um, uh, humans have colonized the inner solar system. Uh, and it is politics uh, and um, intrigue and exploration in space done in a way that is just got amazingly high production values. And as a scientist um, does better than most other shows on representing um, space life accurately. Um, so if you haven't watched The Expanse, get out there and stream it. Um, it is super fun. Uh, I even think there's an Expanse board game out there. I haven't played it, so I can't vouch for it. But I, I have um, the prototype sitting right next to me. Awesome, very good. Cool. Well, yeah. well, is it good? I don't know. Yeah, I, I have I have yet to yet to play it. Yep. But you are in such good company. Uh, so Nerds on Earth does another podcast called The Drift. Uh, which is about Starfinder, which is a new RPG um, from Paizo. And literally yeah. every Paizo employee that came on the drift, they said, hey, we love The Expanse. And so it absolutely is just, ah, it's a great show. And it it does. It has that intrigue. It has that politics, which you think would sound boring. But it's it's a really good really good sci-fi and i think i think we needed some some good sci-fi like that so it is it's so much fun yeah gosh i appreciate this so much i hope that uh that gave folks just um kind of a peek behind the curtain of brotherwise games and i'm so excited for you and unearth i hope that is another just huge hit for you and we just really appreciate you coming on and i appreciate your time and it was great to uh to talk to you Great to talk to you. I love Nerds on Earth. Um, I'm really excited to uh, to hear what you guys come out with. I uh, I think it's an exciting time to be a nerd. It has oh, been for, for sure. a while, but but um, it, it it really is. Uh, we're doing more than contributing to entertainment now. I think um, we're sort of shaping you know the views of of, of uh, not just popular culture but but society in general. And I think we're we're providing avenues for. Um, not just sort of uh, enjoyment, but also growth for folks. And, and we see that in the tabletop gaming community in a way that's just undeniable uh, and so neat. So thanks yeah. for having me. And then as you said, if we're going to shape culture, uh, just the phrase that you use, uh, seat at the table, that's a good way to do it, right? It is. It is. There should be a seat at the table for everybody, not just in gaming, but uh, no matter what we're doing. All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah, take care. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Nerdy Jobs. We hope you enjoyed getting a behind-the-scenes look at one of the nerdy things we love. We do podcasts differently at NerdsOnEarth.com. We feature a variety of short-run shows, and we drop the episodes all at once, Netflix style. We do this so that you can enjoy a variety of topics and consume them however you want to. But we track which of our shows should receive a second season. What that means is if a certain show meets thresholds in things like download numbers or iTunes reviews, then it lets us know that you want more. So, do you want more episodes of Nerdy Jobs? If so, it's up to you to let us know. And the way to do that is to leave us an iTunes review. Make sure you make note that you're casting a vote for Nerdy Jobs to get a second season, meaning more episodes of interviews with creators. Thank you so much for listening. Later, nerds.